Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm just upset about this episode. Okay, well. I'm just confused. And I'm the Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine is forcing us each season to watch movies from a specific year in order to prevent it from starting the apocalypse. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films and access to, although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the movie, The Most Dangerous... No... I wrote that uh, down the wrong. Year, the year. Whoa. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. You are not in your right mind. The year of living dangerously. Yeah. Hamilton. Guy. Occupation. Journalist. Jakarta. First assignment as foreign correspondent. A reporter on the way in. You're an enemy here, Hamilton. Like all Westerners. I felt sorry for you. Dumped in your first posting without contacts. Adrift, hoping to bluff your way through. But you won't. Guy Hamilton, right? Right. Billy Kwan. I did a lot of film work for Potter. The most dangerous year. Where did that come from? <laughs> sounds like a sounds like a Steven Seagal movie. I know. Okay. The other big thing, the big elephant in the room, of course. Last episode, we ended on a cliffhanger where it was the re- the return of the elephant of Dee Dee Hess. All oh, right. So we are actually tied to a couple of chairs. Luckily enough, our uh, podcast equipment is still set up and set to record. So hopefully, someone's going to be editing this and putting it out onto the airwaves. Okay. I'm still lost, but how do we get in the chairs? Did we lose? Did we lose that battle? I thought she just appeared out of a box. She did, but in the interim, in the last week, yeah, we've been tied to chairs, succumbed us. But here we are, being held prisoner, and we have a lot to do because this is our last episode. Is she like hovering over us, gloating, or does she leave? (laughs) Yeah, if you hear deep breathing in the background, (laughs) that is her. It's like Halloween. We have a lot to do this episode, Dave, because. This is our last episode of our 1982 season. So Sweet. This is our final Get the fuck out of here. film yeah. before we move on to something else. We don't know what that is yet. So we have to talk about this movie. We have to talk about how we consider the year 1982. Sure. After having watched 49, Shouldn't 50 films. Shouldn't that be a separate episode? You would my think. point. Yeah. But our stats tell us that nobody listens to those. <laughs> so why not we just wrap it up into one episode here at the end? All right. But with regards to this film, Dave, there's two big names that I think we should talk about. Okay. Uh, first off. The racist. Mel Gibson. <laughs> yeah. The Gibsonator. The Gibsonator. He knows what women want. Uh, Mel or high water. What is my history with Mel Gibson? Yes. I grew up adoring Mel Gibson, right? Mm-hmm. He was the, one of the big uh, movie stars. Huge of the movie 90s. star. Yeah. I don't remember which Lethal Weapon I watched first, because the first one was too early. Probably so three, maybe three, Pesci. yeah, maybe three. Uh, Road Warrior discovered later, but interestingly enough, Thunderdome, I think I had on video fairly early on, even though we were probably not supposed to have watched <laughs> that movie. Sure. Because my first Mad Max idea is that Tina Turner is part of the Mad Max pantheon. By the way, have you watched Thunderdome at all recently? As an adult, no. There's no way it's good. I think all the Thunderdome stuff is great. Oh, and then okay, you leave okay. Thunderdome and it becomes a completely different bad movie. <laughs> George Miller, you know, he gave us a really good one. Yeah, you, and have, also Babe Pig in the City. We're so weird. So yeah. <laughs> you got to watch the Chrome edition. Of Babe Road. Pig in the City? Yeah, black and white. <laughs> the only way you can understand the, the pig is if you watch this in black and white. I'm about to state 
on the record in recorded form that is going to probably get me canceled, okay. but I have to live my truth. The, mm, the hard, tough yeah. thing yeah. is that, yes, Mel Gibson, the man, is ah. kind of an awful entity that I just hate when he has to pop up and, and, and you know, give his opinion on the, At least about on the world. Right. He's one of my favorite directors of all time. Yeah, I think he directs the shit out of his movies. Yeah. I go to bat for Apocalypto. Yeah. I think it's a great movie that uh, not many people have seen. Even Passion of the Christ, while I don't find any religiosity out of it, wow. for me being an, is that you know, word? Okay, I'm yeah. going to say it is. Yeah, yeah. For, for me being an atheist, it doesn't do anything for me that way. But damn, is that not a good <laughs> film adaptation of something from the Bible? Uh, and the other one is like, I will also go to bat for Hacksaw Ridge, right. which was like his big comeback. The Oscars nominated him for best director after all of his stuff in the news. So it's... This, he knows movies. Yeah. He, it's yeah. like this unfortunate thing of like, ugh, I don't like you as a person, but dang, I, I like how you consider film, create the stuff that you're doing. And as an actor... I think he's pretty he's dynamic. He's a pretty good actor. And yeah. uh, we, we keep talking about it. We, uh, he has the Peter, charisma. Yeah, yeah, with Peter O'Toole last week, for instance. He, there's something. like There's some people who just have that movie star quality. Mel Gibson is one of those people. Yeah, I mean, is, there, is there a phase where you would say the Kurt Russell was the lesser version of a Mel Gibson? Mm. I mean, anyways, they're kind of similar in that regard. I think we have this... I can't remember the psychological term of this, but we... Take people who are very good at one thing, and we want to presume that they're very good at everything. Right. So we see Mel Gibson, action star, comedian, director, and we think, oh, this guy must be so liberal, because that's what we associate Hollywood to be right now. Whereas I think, you know, in the, as we saw in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s, I think they would have expected him to be a hard right conservative, mm -hmm. and maybe not so much a anti-Semite <laughs> and Holocaust denier. But, you know, I think it would have been less upsetting for a movie star at that time to have kind of hardline views that way oh so for sure like i mean you look at people like um henry fonda john wayne john wayne those are huge right-wing people who are massive massive stars because hollywood at that time the the new people coming in were probably much Charlton more liberal, liberal but yeah. like the old guard definitely was not yeah. huge reagan fans like there is just different <laughs> this, culture this yeah different it was culture. a different time it was a better time premise is that we hero worship people which is a mistake, and we take them away from the tasks they're good at. We can acknowledge Mel Gibson understands movies. He's actually a pretty good actor. If you like wide-eyed, crazy white men murdering sure. people everywhere. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, here's the wild thing, Dave. This is going to blow your mind. I'm ready. So I love the Mad Max films. Braveheart is fine. I actually don't think that's his best movie. It hasn't held up that I, well. I, I agree. I don't think it actually holds up if you watch it nowadays. But he has that run in the 90s and the early 2000s. I like his What Women One is your favorite movie? Well, not my favorite movie. No. He's good I, say, that, but yeah. I have not seen a single Lethal Weapon movie. What? Isn't that weird? What? I've seen clips, so I know like the well, things and the catchphrases. Two to four on Netflix, mm -hmm. but they didn't put the original, so I don't know who has the rights to it. The original is amazing because it's way more. It's like First Blood, it's way grittier. Right? Yeah, yeah. I have not seen from start to finish any of the Lethal Weapon Fascinating. movies. Fascinating. I have seen again clips. I know all the catchphrases. I understand the story arc that happens to them, but I've not actually sat down and watched a Lethal Weapon movie from start to finish. I like that when you do watch them, you're going to identify so much more with Donald Glover than with Mel Gibson now. <laughs> yeah. Right. keeps getting too old for this shit all right well that's weird it's not that surprising though because you have a very strange approach to films where right. you won't actually watch the ones you're supposed to watch no i go for the <laughs> other ones i have to watch the killer shrews from 1959 dave it's not even about like being intellectual you watch some schlocky shit yeah i yeah. love it
Well, Dave, how about Sigourney <laughs> Weaver? What do you have to say about Sigourney Weaver? I, I love Sigourney Me Weaver, too. mostly because um, she's so badass. She's a good actress and all that, but she's also tied to some of the biggest, right, culture-creating films of the 80s yeah, and 90s, late 70s, 80s and 90s. Kind of by mistake. I, I recently listened to this long-form interview with her on a podcast that I listened to. She was doing, like, avant-garde theater work and kind of just was like, okay, I guess I'll go and do this movie audition, which ends up to be Alien. Right, right. But (laughs) it was not her idea to become a movie star or to get into movies. She wanted to do her like weird art projects on the stage. Yeah, and I think that reflects in her role choices. Like we, obviously we were learning in hindsight how difficult it is for a woman to even have some agency in the kind of roles they get to have in the 80s and 90s. But Sigourney is one of those women that, I mean, she's been in such weird films Mm. and and she's good at it. Presuming that we've watched this film, it reminded me a lot of uh, what it just made me realize, like between you know *Gorillas in the Mist* and then appearing in *Ghostbusters*. Yeah, right. It's like, like her early '80s is a really she's all weird over the place. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. fun. So I, I like well, her. Well, even like so, this is by no. I did not do this intentionally, but with this film, I actually watched three Sigourney Weaver movies oh. this, this week because I watched uh, Working Girl for the oh. very first time, her and Harrison Ford. And Melanie Griffith. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Sigourney's kind of the villain. That's a bizarre movie, but regardless, so I, I watched Working Girl for the first time. I watched this movie and then I watched, um, it's a bit of an indie Alien film. Alien Resurrection. A, a bit of an indie film. <laughs> it's called Avatar The Way of Water. Oh, God. oh she's in this film. <laughs> oh, a oh. lot. A lot more than I actually As thought she was going to be. Yes. Yeah, so, or is there a new? Spoiler alert. Is there a new? Is there a new type of alien in it? I saw kind somebody of, writing some of. different word. Okay. Without spoiling it too much, they're in the water. They're in the water, <laughs> but she is playing her own reincarnated self within an avatar body. Oh so she's basically she Sigourney Weaver is playing a 12, 13 year old girl, like and nails it. Like it's it's a really interesting performance of what she is doing because it's totally you know it's Sigourney Weaver but it's like she is a little kid this is all to say at 77 years old she taught herself to hold her breath for six minutes and like yeah of course because you're Sigourney Weaver of course you're gonna be able to do that Uh, she killed aliens her whole life right (laughs) there's nothing she can't do there's nothing she can't do except win an Oscar do you have any relationship with Peter Weir the director of this film Robocop right no <laughs> no no that's Finn that's no, Verhoeven that's Verhoeven he has had a very bizarre career as well because he's gone all over the map with um genres that sort of thing although he is fairly well known for uh like high-end drama I guess but his big ones Dead Poet Society right the Truman, Truman Show, Show and Master and Commander those are kind of his three big ones I would say yeah those are fantastic movies and there's Witness, Witness too, is okay another, another Harrison yeah, yeah. Ford movie yeah I'm just flicking through my letterbox as well Witness is good I wouldn't say it's being reclaimed, but it's definitely being held in higher esteem, which is, is Master and Commander. It's great. Which is basically forgotten. It got nominated for Best Picture, but like no one People thought it was so it. boring. Like when I watched it in the it theater, so good. <laughs> everybody was like, why is this? I'm like, this movie's amazing. This movie right? should have had like five sequels. Yeah. Like it was, I thought it was that Russell good. Russell Crowe. And we get uh, young... Uh, Paul Bettany. Paul Bettany, Gangster Number 1. That mm-hmm. is a fantastic movie. All right. Yeah. You should watch that. With Malcolm McDowell. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So Peter Weir, good director is what we're saying. <laughs> yeah. How about this movie? Have you seen this movie? Heard of this movie before? No. This, you're gonna roll your eyes. The only I'm reason always rolling my eyes. The only reason here. I have any type of name recognition for this movie is because, of course, 
I like looking up, well, who won Oscars in what year? And like Linda Hunt is uh, fairly well known for breaking out in this movie. She was a theater actress in the UK. Oh, this is her breakout This is her breakout role. And basically, does she doesn't happen all that often, swept the board where she won every single award she was up for. Oh, she got an Oscar for this? Sure did. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) But like Golden Globe, BAFTA, like won every single award. Yeah, yeah. But should she have been cast? No, we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about that, I think. Maybe not ad nauseum. Yeah, we should talk about that. That'll be like number one. So let's do this. While we're tied up here, let's uh, go and take a break. We're going to thank some sponsors. And then when we come back, we'll get right into the nitty gritty of the year of living dangerously. (laughs) (laughs) Not the most dangerous year, which I have written down a second time. I'm going to Google it. There's got to be a movie called the most dangerous year. What was your most dangerous year, Dave? Oh my God. Uh, all of them from my 20s and 30s. Oh, there is a movie called The Most Dangerous Year. Who's it star? I have no idea. It's directed by Vlada Knowlton. Absolutely not. I didn't live uh, well for a long time. Dangerous is an interesting idea, Kyle. What do you mean by dangerous? I mean, living life on the edge. Yeah. Being in, in a military junta, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I haven't spent that much time in uh, communist Southeast Asia, at least in the last 10 years. Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine, of course, is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This week, of course, we are brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. I have some questions, Kyle, about my health insurance for my employees. Yeah, Because even if you are a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online, anytime, and on any device, making it easier for them and, get this, for you. Uh, to learn more and explore your options, head on over to ab.bluecross.ca. We're a Palm Pilot. You think they can <laughs> access that on a Palm I Pilot? So. I hope so. We have a Palm Pilot integration. <laughs> Chief among that was such a big deal. I was working at a computer store when those came out, and that was like it was supposed to take over the world. I watched this movie that took place in the year two thousand and seven. Ooh, and there was a character who's like, "I gotta have my BlackBerry," and it's like <laughs> this may as well have been made in nineteen fifty-five. I missed like, my BlackBerry. <laughs> I had a, the keyboard one, and uh, when we had to switch to iPhones, I was very disappointed because when you have a tactile keyboard, it's, it's better. Uh huh. Yeah. Not with your fat thumbs like I do. Well, no, I have worst. giant thumbs. That's why I can't type on a screen. It's constantly I just missing. I see my screen now. I see people doing that. And I think it's gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, our second sponsor is uh, Connect First Credit Union. You know what? I'm so bad at this. Why don't we just let them tell you right about what they do? Do you ever feel like just a number, a digit, a denominator, a decimal? Another cog in the big bank machine, waiting on hold, online, never on time, and always on your dime. Like your worth is only calculated by your net worth. In a world full of numbers, it's nice to know there's a place where you're not one. Connect First Credit Union. Bank on a brighter future. 
Okay, Dave, we have uh, watched this film for the first time, and uh, let's come up with a scenario before we jump into our conversation about it. You know, mm -hmm. you and I have decided we need a well-earned vacation after mm -hmm. doing an entire season talking about movies. And so- Wouldn't we, it be nice though, if we got paid for this and we could actually go on vacation? Well, we should we should actually thank, as of this recording, yeah. we got the new Patreon supporter. What? So, That's great. Thank you to Clement, who actually uh, ponied up oh, and gave wow. us some money. Clement's great. Yeah, he's been underpinning a lot of us. And Clement, we're gonna watch Silence just for you. That's true. Yeah. So we have decided that we're gonna go on this vacation and it's like, hmm, let's look at this dart at the board. Indonesia. Let's go to Indonesia. I was just in Bali. This is what I'm talking about. I know. About. So we land, we right. get off the plane. Yeah. A very wizened old woman comes up to us. She's hungry and, and she's, she's asking hungry. for yes, her money. But she also has a VHS copy <laughs> of The Year of Living Dangerously and asks, What is this movie about? Yeah. I'm pretty sure watch it. Uh, what is this movie about? A young Australian journalist. Like, what's the year? 1956 something? A young uh, Australian journalist. 60 something, actually, I think. Um, but, yeah, he's a, he's a new journalist trying to make a name for himself, goes to this place that is under military control and falls in love. Yeah, under military control, but facing a communist revolution and somehow falls in love with potentially a spy. I forget if that was actually the last episode or two episodes ago now. It's so relevant now because the documentary, The Act of Killing, Oh, yeah. Directly references what is happening in this movie yeah, yeah. about the terrible atrocities that the Indonesian government perpetrated against its own population. Probably funded by the United States. Potentially, but, but yeah. yes. <laughs> um, but who can say, Dave? Who Everyone. Can say? It's pretty common. Both knowledge. sides. Both sides. This movie is an interesting thing because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't understand the context of it. I feel like I was uh, middle of the road as far as understanding what I was supposed to get out of the film. So I have a feeling that if I knew it was going to be sort of a political drama, even thriller, I might have engaged a little bit earlier on as to the tone of the film. I think everybody's good in it. But yeah, I just found myself unsure of what to expect. The biggest thing, and well, I guess we should start with, start with this, is that uh, I didn't realize Linda Hunt was supposed to be a man until like maybe 40 minutes into it. Okay, good and to then, know. Uh, and then I was a little weirded, of course, by her yellow facing. And as the story progresses, I'm like, okay, I mean... I can understand if, I don't know if this is based on a book, but I can understand how the character is supposed to be this almost androgynous, like androgynous, not in such an intentional way as we would understand it now, but androgynous in that he's not supposed to be a, a romantic rival to Mel Gibson. He's not supposed to be connected to Scorny Weaver's character in, in such a, in such a way. So I, I can understand how the character's written. I'm just surprised they went with Linda Hunt for something like that. Yeah. And she's great in it. Well, the, the, this is the hard thing to talk about. So I was much more positive on this movie than you. I thought this was a really great straightforward drama the kind of movie that really doesn't get made a whole lot anymore or if it is this is a miniseries you're making this a six yeah. episode miniseries that's going to be on your With premium a lot more sex yeah well not even sex it would just be like longer that's miniseries <laughs> that's a modern day miniseries okay it's like 50 percent butts Dave is anti-sex, but uh, so it, it, it's not the type of movie that's like, we're going to take two hours, tell this story about these, yeah, yeah. in my opinion, interesting characters that are thrust uh, together See, inside sex. this movie. This is what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sex. I never want to hear Kyle say thrust again. 
Gross. For the vast, vast majority of it, I was kind of in it. It's like, okay, it's an interesting backdrop you're in. He's trying to accomplish being seen as a great journalist. Maybe spies around. There's this intrigue that's going on, pushing against the system and eventually being able to get out. Yeah. It's like, is he going to be able to escape this? Does he want to? Right. Right. I have seen other reviewers point this out and i don't actually even disagree necessarily with it which is ultimately who we are following mel gibson and sigourney weaver their problems are not as important as what the backdrop is yeah so it would make maybe more sense to focus a bit more on what is happening depends but, on yeah it depends on if you're writing it for your viewership or if you're writing for the content right exactly so as it is as it's set up who we're following i was in this i was actually pretty enthralled in fact like the other movie that this reminded me of that we watched this year was Missing. Mm -hmm. yep. um, and I actually prefer this, I think, to Missing overall. Mm. Linda Hunt. So the, the hard part about this is that I don't think this is a caricature akin to Mickey Rooney, say, in yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, yeah. I don't think this is mean-spirited. At the same time, it is really distracting. It's like, that is a white woman playing an asian man they try to say half asian but yeah. it's, it's not working that well yeah but definitely has yellow facing it and i'm they're doing something with her eyes as well so that's not great either so it's uncomfortable for me to watch this because it's like you're doing a good performance i can't deny that she is doing a great performance and yeah it's just like you probably should just cast an asian actor in this role what's hard to, to know is you know what the available talent pool is mm -hmm. for this particular character because I mean, you, can, you don't have to write for the height necessarily unless they're fixated on that. But In the book, because you're right, this is based on a novel. It's not based on a true story. It's a novel. It is an Asian man in the novel Pygmy. It's a Pygmy Asian man is who it is. So that's the thing. So I, again, I, don't, I guess they're being fixated on the height. Yes. And if you're fixated on the height, then your talent pool drops to nearly nothing. And then you need someone who can speak English in a strong enough way to hold up to the uh, what you want in the narrative. Because if you go to Asian accent, it in itself becomes a character. Which again, one tiny thing I will give to this movie is that she does not affect an Asian accent. Yes. Which I think is to the credit of the performers and people. So it's tough, you know, and I can imagine, I mean, I don't, we don't know much about casting culture. Uh, we don't, I don't know why I mean, she would be involved yes, in this. Yes, I mean, Asian actors at that time did not have many options. Like James Hong wouldn't have made this work probably I like not him a lot. but i was like he's in it for very little but in conan the barbarian they have the actor mako oh, mako yeah um but he's very he, japanese very yes that's the thing right and this is she's supposed to be chinese well it's I written guess. in the movie as half chinese half yeah. uh british or something but i don't know what it'd be in the book yeah i don't right? i don't yeah. know that for sure i mean at the time though Asian is Asian, so they don't really care at that point. It's true, but like I can understand or I can imagine a project like this wanting to have such a serious tone and aiming. It's clearly what we would call Oscar baiting, but mm -hmm. it's aiming to be this really big, epic speaking drama. It's not even like a visual drama. They're not right. focusing so much on maybe what we're what you were talking about, like the death and the and the vis, uh, visual violence and gore. They want it all implied. So it's a it's a hard spot. I think an easier out would have just not focused on the pygmy size because you can absolutely I, have yeah. this character just be you know maybe a slightly non masculine. Like if you still want to make sure that it's not a romantic tension, you know, just somebody very benign and find someone, uh, they might have had a bigger pool to draw from. Yeah. When it starts, I'm like, oh, I don't know. But she's great in it. 
And then you forget by probably past the halfway point, you're like, it doesn't matter. She's so good. And I want to mm. see why she's so fucking weird and <laughs> attracting all these people. And should have just been Linda Hunt. Like, yeah. You don't even do anything. It's just, it's just Linda Hunt. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, to your own biases, were you put off by the voiceover work at the beginning to no, kind of narrate where we were? Not really. Like the, the narration didn't bother me. I think it, it really was just her physical representation, which is like, hmm. It's hard for me to suspend my disbelief. What is wild is to read reviews from that time period where like everyone is just like, yeah, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally bought in. Didn't even realize it was a woman for the entire runtime. So yeah, maybe there is just that 40 year gap of time where it's now like, no, no, no. Like I can tell what, what's going on here right from frame also, one. This is our first movie. No one would know who she is. I mean, no, she's no pretty recognizable now to us, mm -hmm. whether we understand like what she's been in or not, but she has a look where we know that she's been in another movie. How about the connection to Missing? What would what you say about that? I didn't actually think about it when I was watching it. And so this is a credit to this film. You know, I didn't side surf. I didn't look away. It is quite, yeah, enthralling. Is that the word you mm -hmm. used? When you just brought it up. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of great parallels. I'm trying to think of why this is more successful. Like, I think the the pacing and the the way the story moves, even like the secondary characters are all really fully uh, fully developed. Mm -hmm. The one exception, I mean, it's not that it's bad, but the he's not a villain, but the really annoying nuisance journalist who just wants to have sex with hookers. He's pretty right. distracting sure. because he's just so over the top. But outside of that, I feel like in Missing, I don't remember anyone other than Jack Lemmon and Sissy Spacey. Right, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I think for something this wide and broad, having fully developed secondary characters who have their own subtext, like uh, that one reporter turning out to be hiding that he's gay and, you know, having the villain, that gives it a lot of depth. The uh, stuck up British commander who plays the bagpipes and, you know, so competitive. I, I like that because you're like, oh, this is a guy that isn't necessary for the main plot, but fills out the story. So it's it's built really well. And then comparing to, let's say, Sophie's Choice or another drama that's based on a book, this one is adapted really well knowing mm -hmm. nothing about the book but i don't get the feeling that i'm missing something yes i was gonna bring this up so having done research i was gonna bring up sophie's choice especially in this because one of our big things in that review if you go back and listen to it is like why is this stingo character here right there's no reason in a film for this character to actually be here in the book version of this film there is another character who is basically like the father confessor who everyone comes and tells their story to. Oh, that's the is, vehicle for the narrative. he's retelling okay. the story. I'm like, thank God they did not put that character right? in. Because yeah. you don't need him. It's not what's important in the story. That's, yeah, the script in this, I don't know who wrote it. I didn't really mm -hmm. look at anything for this film, but uh, whoever built this script understands movies as well. Because, yeah, the, the movie language and how we get through this narrative is great. I just, I don't know what it is at the end of the day that I didn't really key into to make this like a best picture conversation mm -hmm. for me. I think what bothers me a little bit in a modern context, I am starting to get a little tired of this trope of uh, putting any revolutionary action in such a violent light. I know revolutions have to be violent, but only the communists in this are a, a, a mob, right? right. They try to destroy this car, which likely would have happened if you're trying to push a car in to mm -hmm. take pictures of shit. Um, but we don't see, to your point earlier, the military junta murdering people as well. We see starvation, we see economic uh, distress, but it's not uh, painted as a result of the dictator because it's an American film. It's just like, oh, well, this is a third world country. This is what uh, Jakarta is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. I think I would have enjoyed it more if we got... Uh, more of a counterbalance to understand. Uh, 
So understandably, at the end of the film, we see some soldiers being a little bit more brutal, but it puts them in a defensive light. It makes it seem like they're justified in like executing people. Yeah, it's an, it's, I didn't also, really it's enjoy also that. like a fascinating time in Hollywood. Like, have you ever watched the Warren Beatty's film Reds? No, what, about the airline uh, airplane fighters or something? No, oh, not at all. That's that's, uh, a, that's, that's George a, Lucas's that's Red George, Red Tails, Red Tails or something. Or something. Okay, yeah. Reds came out like the year before this in 1981. Mm. It is literally about the formation of the socialist party in, in America. Okay. <laughs> right. But in a very like reverential way, it is pro, so pro communist. It is. Yeah. It is straight up. Well, I shouldn't say pro communist. It's pro socialist. It's a very clearly pro socialist film. So that's an 81 Beatty wins best director. Uh, it's nominated for best picture. Like people love this movie, but very quickly by 84, we're getting into times where like it's Rambo. It's patriotism, like yeah. rah, rah, patriotism, Hulk Hogan on the TV. Like the, the threat of the Soviet union is so great. There's like every bad guy is a Russian. Yeah. You can kind of start to see this shift. I find in movie making, this isn't really a Hollywood film, but still like the society at large is switching from being like, well, socialism might have some good points. So like anything that is socialist is bad. And I think that's what you're seeing in this film where it's like, well, we can't have the both sides of it because that's going to paint us as being communist sympathizers, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. The only thing I sympathize with is that I should be the supreme ruler of Earth. You brought up at the beginning of the season about how you were expecting the genre of film to play such a bigger role, uh, you know, and you thought HIV would play a big mm -hmm. role. But I think we're a little bit too early because we're starting to see that influence, but the impact will be later as you brought up. Uh, maybe where we're at is the last grasp of that anti-Vietnam sentiment coming through the late 60s into the, throughout the 70s and we get a lot of more yeah. artsy and intellectual filmmaking. But maybe this is the year where they realized even if you're a socialist leading person, you can make so much fucking money making films that people want to see as opposed right. to challenging them to think. Uh, and maybe that's where we see the shift to... Uh, it's so loud. It's I'm like, pouring water, everyone. He's taking a piss. I swear to God, I'm, I'm pouring water. You gotta put that back in your pants. Speak for yourself. You know, just talking about socialism, this is the capitalist problem because there shouldn't be anything inherently wrong with making money, but there is a corrupting impact because when you start making too much money, it starts to inform all your decisions. So I think Hollywood, more than anywhere, we see the impact of this. I would even say Hollywood is more impactful than, let's say, uh, high finance because it has an impact on culture. So, uh, well, I think it's interesting what this movie about. also shows is, I guess, the different attitudes of journalism. Not that there aren't these types of movies or shows that are made today, but I would definitely argue that the profession of journalism and the idea of what journalism is is not looked at in a super favorable light in the year 2022 going into year 2023. I, I, don't know. I don't know if that's true. I mean, look at how many films are talking about like Spotlight or this one nobody watched about Harvey Weinstein. What's I mean? Like she said, nobody watched. I do love Spotlight. I think Spotlight's actually a really great movie. <laughs> I'm just saying like, by and large, if you go to the average person, it's like, oh, well, this is the one place you go to for news, but everywhere uh, else is bad. Mm, <laughs> They're all lying me. to you. And maybe my dad is influencing me because that's <laughs> his point of view that journalists well, that, are lying to you. There's their job is to lie to you to, in order for them new. to. That's not new. I mean, I think we used to trust the newspaper more inherently, but we always knew which newspaper you're supposed to buy. So even when I was living in Toronto, the Toronto Star at that time was left-leaning. Uh, the Globe and Mail was more centrist. And then when the National Post came out, that's yeah, a very right-wing. Right -wing. Yeah. Now, from what I read, that right-wing side owns all the media outlets. So even the yes. Toronto Star has in, uh, moved In Canada, 
most every newspaper well, there's not the even right no side. newspapers much anymore, but if you do, it is a conservative leaning. They've control they've bought the the popular media. Yes. So but there was a time even then when you know, you trust journalists because it required actual research. So they were still, prof- not, not, not an offense to professional journalists now, but people wanted to read news by learned individuals. And if they had a political lean or the editor had one, I mean, then you just choose which side, you know, you pay for. Nowadays, uh, with the bane of my existence, social media and fucking like, yeah, like clickbait culture, well, you and I could create news. Oh, sure. You know, if we put our movie review on an algorithm, like on Instagram stories or something, and it act like one of our stupid opinions got picked up, it could become a quote unquote fact very quickly. And that's why we're all so dumb, pal. We're getting fucking stupid as a as a race or whatever you want to call it, as the human race. There's actually, I wish I could remember his name, but there's a, uh, I don't know what we'd call him. Anyways, his whole thing is that he makes up fake Mm. stories and sees how long he, it takes for either Someone a newspaper, a news organization, or Wikipedia to reference it as being true. Yeah. And he tracks it like, this is how it got there. But it's not. I made it up completely yeah. from, from start to finish. Before we got into that digression, what I was trying to lead up to is that what this movie is showing too is just a journalist who is trying, he has to make a name for himself. And I feel like what I really responded to was this entire arc the Mel Gibson character being like, well, I think this is what a journalist should be. And he gets chastised for it at the very beginning. And then ultimately understands, oh, this is what journalism can be. I can poke the bear a little bit. I can try and provoke. I can still write it. Um, while still understanding the people back home probably are not going to care. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't know about the second part. It's hard because we don't get a response from the Australian people. Sure. Uh, and you and I don't have the political context to understand how they would have, mm-hmm. you know, Especially Australia, like the most racist country at that time, you know. Uh, okay, wow, <laughs> gauntlet thrown. Well, they weren't. They didn't allow. Even if you married an Asian woman, you weren't allowed to have your wife come to the country until the eighties. That's fucking weird, dude. That is weird. Yeah, that is weird. Uh, and so this is happening in an Asian country. So uh, it's just it's just different. And they've decimated their indigenous culture. And at any rate, I think it's interesting too. I, I think you know what the other thing maybe that I don't like. I don't like the ending. I feel like. The baseline, other than the romance, is, as you brought up, we have a man who shows up as an idealist, becomes pragmatic, tries to choose his career over love and his self-interest. But at the end, I mean, he does lose an eye, but he gets to hop on a plane and be in love with Sigourney Weaver. And I think that's a bit of a Hollywood cop. I don't know Hollywood, but it's a bit of a cop out. Not to be too cynical, but I think he should have died, right? <laughs> he already made his choice. He... Uh, he tried to wow. instigate this revolution, you know, not instigate it, but he tried to break this revolution as a personal news story. He put everybody he knows in danger. Uh, we're presuming many of them are going to die. And then he enlists the help of his communist friend to get him to an airport so he can fucking go have sex with Sigourney Weaver in a different country. It's bullshit. You know, I don't like, it might have even been true. You know, that's probably how journalists have that protection, you know, the right of press, et cetera, so they can be entrenched, but also go to the next front line. But that part, I think, made me feel a little disappointed because, or, you know, maybe I would have liked it if he's just lying in the bed at the end and we don't actually know what happens to him. Dave is anti-love, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, 
Was I, it even a romance? I mean, there are romantic did, parts. There are romantic yeah. parts. I don't know. I, I mean, I described this such as being a romantic film, but to, I, I get that point. It's like, is it that the primary driver? I, I would maybe argue that it is not the primary driver, but those elements are there. It is definitely... It's done well. Like um, a, I love the the rain scene. Yeah. Like all of it, it's done very, very well. It's done very uh, adeptly. It's just, I my focus was on the political strife. Yeah. Can I just say that I wrote this down? This is something that I brought up multiple times. We are in the early 80s. Uh, Mel Gibson is shirtless a few times in yeah, this he's movie. Still good looking. Yeah. Uh, but he, yeah, he's not even 30 years old yet in this movie. I remember a time when uh, men, this is, this, I'm going to talk about the impossible beauty standards, but for males. Remember a time when people could still be considered attractive and not have literally human Six growth horm yeah. hormone that you've been injecting for like the last and starving yourself for like the last two years? It's not that he's not fit. He's a fit man, but it's not like he is like chiseled. He looked like, like a human being. Like, yeah, he looks like a human being. That's what I'm trying to say. I mean, although the counterpoint to that is when we watched Red Sun, uh, Charles Bronson could have been a Marvel <laughs> that superhero. That is true. <laughs> but I think that was just him. I don't know. That's, that's what I mean. Weird anomaly. It's not like there weren't performance enhancing things at that time, but he was like a living embodiment of what every Marvel superhero wishes they could look like. Right. Or what their parents obviously look like. You know, Superman's dad had Charles Bronson's body. The thing that's been striking me because we're watching so many of these films uh, is that one thing I forget is that someone who becomes an actor, it's not just intellectually they want to embody some character. These are physically demanding jobs. And so I think that women too, you have to be pretty fit to be an actor. It's not mm -hmm. just casting or impossible beauty standards. You can't really put a person on film that can't, for example, do a pull-up. Like, I right. I can't do a pull-up. But I'm not in a movie. My back's not going to look good with a shirt off <laughs> on film, right? So right. We're, the baseline is different. I mean, Steve Buscemi was a fucking firefighter before he mm -hmm. became an actor, right? These are not useless people. Uh, so the idea of an impossible beauty standard, I think, is a little dismissive. Because I, I used to think that, too, about how difficult it is to be an actor in general. You know, like... You'll never meet uh, a scrawny dancer. They're skinny ones because of the impossible beauty standards of what, I can't remember which ballet fucking choreographer ruined it for all women. Berbershnikov. Right. But at the same time, every one of those skinny women can pick me up, mm -hmm. right? Uh, their feet are all broken and they're all miserable because it's so difficult to look a certain way to uh, dance in a ballet, but they're fucking strong as hell. So I don't know. It's a weird thing that I'm learning. I just want to say that my back is beautiful. <laughs> Uh, let's do some backstory here then. So this movie opened up on December 16th, 1982. It is rated 3.4 on Letterboxd, 7.1 on IMDb, 65 on Metacritic. And on Rotten Tomatoes, from 32 critics, it's at 88%. And from 5,000 plus users, it's at 77%. Currently available to purchase or rent on iTunes or YouTube. And just as a side note, can we just talk about the transfer of this movie? Because... Uh, you know what I think? Yeah. I, I don't think it was the transfer. I think, if I had to guess, I think that the cinematographer fucked up some of his exposures. Possibly, but just to lay it out here for people that don't know what we're talking about. I had a copy of this movie, perhaps legally, that I was watching, and I had to stop. It was unwatchable. After 15 minutes, because I thought it was unwatchable bad. Um, it was way too dark, and the subtitles that I had to 
put turn on uh were off by three seconds nice <laughs> because i literally couldn't hear it because the sound was off too like I, it was i could not get my tv loud enough for me to actually hear what they were saying so i was like okay i'm abandoning that i'll rent it off of itunes and even on there i'm like oh like some of these images are not great and at least for the first half i could see like the little bird marks in the top right yeah, for the, marks still for the there, 15 yeah. minute mark where when you were projected in a movie theater this is old people talking now but what it used to do because the the projectionists would have to know when to change the reel so they would put like a little cigarette mark you saw those coming up which means that they had to have pulled this the one on itunes from an old copy that the theater had like they don't even have the original copy anymore yeah i don't know yeah and i don't know the digital transfer process like for example disney has the budget to make tron look like yeah, a modern amazing. film yeah, yeah. watching it and understanding a little bit about how film grain appears like for example on the balcony scene where mel gibson and i don't know the character's name but the who the guy who turns out to be one of the leaders of the communist revolution they're sitting on this beautiful veranda overlooking uh, the rice paddies and every time they look at Mel Gibson's face, it's clean, it's well exposed. But when they turn the camera to um other guy. Yeah, other guy. Uh you get very high grain, it's very muddy, yeah, it's very difficult. But I think they use the wrong film stock when they shot it. And then they're trying to recover it, either because they had to use a different take and the sunlight had gone, or because whatever lighting they were using just didn't have enough intensity uh, because they're sitting on opposite ends of wherever the sun's hitting. Sure. But for whatever the um, problem was, you know, you see it there, you see it anytime Linda Hunt is in the shanty town, you see mm -hmm. it anytime they're at night. And then when they're in the day, everything's clean. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like, even sometimes in between scenes, it was like, oh, this is not good. And they're like, oh, this looks great. And I then it looks bad. I think it's cinematographer. I think whatever, or maybe not the cinematographer uh, themselves, but the cameraman or whoever chose the film stock. I have a suspicion they just brought the wrong film stock for those this shots. This is an Australian-funded film, too. So that's like whatever they could get. Lower they, budget. They got. I, I, I think that's the problem. That being said... Someone should do a remaster of this film because I think it deserves to be remastered. You can't recover that. With computers, you can do anything, Dave. Uh, no, that... You can make Harrison Ford look like a younger Harrison Ford. That's modern, right? But I think with that kind of film grain problems, there's mm -hmm. not much you can do to recover uh, the image. It would just become like a flat sheen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you couldn't... There's no detail to recover. You'd have to invent it. James Cameron will be able to invent James it. James Cameron could, but it would be a $200 million <laughs> restoration. <so. laughs> We're going to do it for this one and movie. And there would be a Navi in it. And it would just ruin the whole tone I of love it. just Jake Sully <laughs> hanging out in the background. Like, what is... What's he doing there? Uh, this budget is $6 million. It would go on to make $10 million. So not not a huge hit by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, $6 million tells you everything. Of, of, like about the film quality. Yeah, it's shot really well. Like, that's only uh, one third it's of well. Giorgio right there. <laughs> that's a pretty low budget. The plot description from IMDb is a young Australian reporter tries to navigate the political turmoil of Indonesia during the rule of President Sukarno with the help of a diminutive photographer. Dave, it's time to play Guess, Guess that, that, that Tag. Time of the show where I put this handsome blazer on, pick up a long microphone like Bob Barker used to use, and we play this game. You know, when you go to the movie theater, of course, you see that row of movie posters when you first enter into the lobby, and they have that little piece of text that happens on the poster that entices you to want to come and see this movie. You probably, Dave, are like chomping. Actually, it's champing yeah, I was gonna at say, the bit. Yeah, champ it. You're champing on that bit I don't to know see why. Babylon. What's the difference between a champ and a chomp? I guess chomp is a little heavier. All in I the know chew. is that you are a chump. <laughs> so you're going to go see 
Babylon, Dave. You're going to strap in and watch three hours of Margot Robbie and Brad oh, Pitt yeah. and all the other people yeah. in Damien Chazelle's Wait, new movie. Oh, no, Amsterdam is the one that's on Disney Plus now. Yeah. So they're Apparently different movies. Bad. Apparently very bad. Sounds the same movies. Maybe all movies are bad. Dave, there is a tagline to this movie. Two of these are completely made up by me. One of these is the real one. So Wasn't is the tagline- Babylon a couple years ago with like... Uh, a bunch of high-end actors, or is that a different name? Wasn't Brad Pitt in a film called with Babel? Babel. That was right. like over ten years ago. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it just sounds the same, and had a big all-star cast in it mm-hmm. as well. And I also didn't watch that movie. <laughs> We're on the pulse of culture, Dave. Mm-hmm. So he came there to tell the story of revolution and ended up falling in love—a love story worth telling. <laughs> the <laughs> intense look you just gave me. <laughs> A love caught in the fire of revolution. Mm. Which one of those is it, Dave? I'm going to go with one. Yeah, he, uh, he came there to tell the story of revolution and ended up falling in love. Yeah. Incorrect. It's actually the last one. A love caught in the fire of revolution. All dumb. Stars Mel Gibson as Guy Hamilton. Sigourney Weaver is Jill Bryant. Linda Hunt is Billy Kwan. And Bill Kerr as Colonel Henderson. My weird thing is, is that this character is named Guy Hamilton, who was the director of a lot of James Bond films. Mm. I don't know if that is an allusion to that fact or if it's just by coincidence. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't look up anything. I forgot I even watched this movie, so I got nothing. Linda Hunt is like now on NCIS or CSI, uh, one she, of those. She was in Dune. Oh, that's true. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, David, the, origin, uh, the original uh, Dune, yeah. Yeah. The David Lynch one. Mm-hmm. Cinematography is by Russell Boyd. His top four from IMDb are Gallipoli from 1981, Picnic at Hanging Rock from 1975, Master and Commander from 2003, and uh, probably his best work, the cinematic classic Dripping with sarcasm. known as Crocodile Dundee ah. from 1986. So, uh, film stock choice. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they just fucked it I'm up. I'm going to say, because all the, <laughs> of the three other films that I know that I've seen, it was like, well, those look really great. So. It might not have even been his fault. You know, maybe they just... Maybe they just got one film stock and it just was inadequate for the light. It could have been that Tron thing, right? Where it's either exposed improperly at the lab or something like that, too. Who knows? That's what it looks like. This was written by David Williamson and Peter Weir and C.J. Koch, based on the novel by C.J. Koch, directed by Peter Weir. Mm. The other thing is, Dave, that I've been noticing here, and if we were to go to, like, I don't know, let's just say, like, a really new year, like Uh a really... Uh-huh. Within the last five years, not a year, like we've planned it, but just yeah, on the presumption, yeah, on the presumption that we're coming back. This is my presumption, and maybe I'd be proven wrong. Where so many like modern writers and filmmakers are coming from film schools, like mm. middle class to uh, to lower high class, going to film school, learning all like the tricks, like this is how you make a movie, versus people who had like a life before, yeah, and, like yeah. maybe I'll write a movie now, and they this were is the a, difference. A crime journalist or right. uh, something. Yeah. So once again. We start with a man who was a journalist for yeah. many, many years. So he, the novel, The Year of Living Dangerously, is published in 1978. The author, C.J. Koch, was born in Tasmania, but started his working life as a journalist, then a teacher, before publishing his first book called The Boys in the Island. But The Year of Living Dangerously, the book, as I mentioned, is named by this character named Cookie. Nice. Who is this older man, served as the father confessor for many of the characters, and then he's retelling the story. Skimming the plot synopsis as I did basically seems like it's the exact same plot beats that we're going through. But the book is received well. It was banned in Indonesia, surprisingly enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A bunch of filmmakers apparently want to adapt this book. Like It was like this big sensation. But Peter Weir is the one who ultimately is successful at securing the rights. C.J. Koch writes the first draft. Weir says, 
thank you, and then takes it and rewrites the whole thing. <laughs> Other actors were considered for Willie Kwan instead of Linda Hunt, uh, never an Asian actor. But apparently Weir came across, a, in fact, they had someone else hired for a short time. And then Weir was like, no, this is not working out. Weir came across a picture of Linda Hunt and decided to ask her to come in on an audition and was just impressed. So he decides to cast her. But she was working in the UK on stage at the time. So she didn't even chase the part. He no, brought her in. He basically brought her in. So they originally wanted to film in Indonesia, but were denied access. So they decided to go to the Philippines. Then they start to receive a number of death threats, specifically by um, a local, the local Muslim population. Both Gibson and Weir are getting these death threats sent to them. They, so they have to eventually go back to Australia. Now, years later, Gibson has this interview where he kind of says, I was never all that worried because of how many death threats that they were receiving. He said the volume was such that at a certain point, it's like, if you're going to kill me, you're going to come and kill me. You're not going to send me a note. Yeah. He says he was never all that worried. Eventually, it's released, generally well-received. Uh, and like I said, Linda Hunt would win Best Supporting Actress technically in the following year because it doesn't come to America until 1983. It came out in January Kyle of 1983. gray area picks here. I know, but uh, it says 1982 beside it. So check and mate, I das believe. Das didn't, but yeah. yeah. I don't regret watching it, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, I don't know why I didn't really buy into the whole thing I mm. yeah like i said i think it's solid I, I i think where i'm at similarly is like i don't think it's ever elevates itself to be like one of the greats mm -hmm. like one of the best movies of all time but for me it's like right down the middle solid crowd pleasing film that's well done well acted well made so it like works for me there's two last things i just wanted to to pull out here just uh, not not your urinating again please just keep it just, in the right the first yeah. is that there is this kind of line near the end i think kind of sounds like the movie and i guess it, you you can tell me whether or not you buy into this to kind of make this point like there's the high society that can actually affect change based on the money they have but ultimately don't really the care bar scene. okay yeah. yeah yeah and then there's the low society that does need help and they're starting to be told because they don't have any power themselves to actually tell their own story so it's the journalist's job to like bridge that gap of being able to say these are the actual stories of the low society the people are being trod upon and getting in front of the people who are in the higher society so that they can actually do something and help these people out but i don't know if you actually agree with that statement i don't know i think you maybe read that because you want that to be the case mm -hmm. i don't think the movie's trying to tell that i think that the movie is showing it's what makes it interesting is it's complex linda hunt's character realizes that the poor people can't even help themselves even right. when they have access to her money or to her advice or sorry his money and his advice uh, to seek a doctor or to get out of a place where you have to drink shit water they won't do it and it's not because they're dumb or they don't have access to it it's like their cultural conceptualization of what they're supposed to do so there's that tension where i don't even think i mean there's not even a stage where mel gibson's trying to send the message to the general or to the government they seem the journalists are appearing to be very selfish and very self-centered so um i think the movie's more about questioning whether journalists are there for correct reasons i mean the whole mm -hmm. character linda hunt is playing is looking for a journalist that could potentially carry this um right. revolutionary message correctly and when that can't happen um he goes unhinged and uh, basically not commits suicide but sacrifices himself to just become a martyr it doesn't work I mean, we could I even think it's ask an aspirational claim. I don't think necessarily I what the, say, the, the yeah. movie is trying to communicate. I mean, is that something 
I don't, I don't know enough journalists to know whether they want to affect change by connecting classes or they just believe in the power of storytelling and that there is a readership. Well, there's different types of journalists too, right? Like there is also the camp where it's like every journalist must be completely objective and can never bring in their own point of view. And it's like, that's a nice thing in theory, but that's also the most boring writing you can ever read if it's literally like... <laughs> it's privileged writing, right? right? This idea that you don't have a bias. You don't have a sure. bias. But again, there's the complete opposite side of like, well, everything is a lie and they're always trying to push a specific narrative which i mean some are but regardless the last thing i just wanted to point out this is a funny thing so he is taken by that leader of the the revolution they're on that kind of like road trip going right. out they go to the i don't know if it's like an abandoned house of some kind and there's the pool that's in the back yeah. place and there's a woman who's just kind of clearing skimming, some of the leaves skimming it but yeah. there's these leaves over anyways she then dives into the pool and what is potentially the worst fucking dive i have ever seen in my entire what life do you mean? she like just flops into it she's not like i don't know it's it just i had to rewind Ka it because like Kyle what the is fucking synchronized swimmer it's not even that it's like I got confused because, like, did she fall in or did she mean to actually jump oh, in? Because wow. it looks weird how she, like, falls into it. Anyways, it is the worst dive I've ever seen in my entire life. I had to rewind it to rewatch it again. I was like, worst dive. Wow. I don't know if there was more than one take or that's that some, was just one take that they had. Some petty shit. Some petty shit. It is, but I like to... I thought you were going to ask, you know, why skim the top part where she's diving in, where she's just going to come Being up out of the water in the compost yeah. anyways. We're done here. All right. Well, the machine has said that we do have to wrap things up here. So let's get into talking about what some of the uh, critics thought in our segment called Critics' Choice. This is the part of the show where we discover what the critics thought at the time this film was released. So Roger Ebert loved this movie, gave it four out of four stars. And he writes, this sounds, no doubt, like a foreign correspondent plot from the 1940s. It is not. The Year of Living Dangerously is a wonderful, complex film about personalities more than events. And we really share that feeling of living in that place at that time. It does for Indonesia what Bogdanovich's St. Jack did for Singapore. The direction is masterful. Weir is as good with quiet little scenes, like Billy's visit to a dying child, as big, violent ones, like a thrilling attempt by Guy and Billy to film a riot. Pauline Kael was a little bit more muted in her response, but she did enjoy this movie too. Peter Weir's romantic adventure film is set in Indonesia in 1965 during the political upheavals that shook President Sukarno's unstable government and centers on the Caucasian community of journalists and diplomats in Jakarta. Linda Hunt has the pivotal male role of the goblin-like Billy Kwan, a half-Chinese, half-Australian cameraman who plays matchmaker and brings together Mel Gibson as a newly-arrived Australian foreign correspondent and Sigourney Weaver as the assistant military attaché at the British Embassy. To a degree, Weir is the victim of his own skill at creating the illusion of authentic third world misery, rioting, and chaos. The emaciation of the natives overwhelms the made-up problems of the Caucasians, but movie squalor has its own glamour, and scene by scene, this film is fascinating. Despite a certain amount of mystical East blather, it's alive on the screen. A new style, old-time dangerous steaminess builds up as Gibson and Weaver eye each other. And though Billy Kwan is the movie's walking conscience and higher moral purpose, Linda Hunt's lyric intensity and concentration help to purify the lines she speaks so eloquent very eloquent yeah um i like that they describe her as goblin like it's too bad i, I wonder how awful a pauline kale script would have been <laughs> right. a little bit verbose does this hold up and is it still culturally relevant dave what do you think um 
You know, I'm I'm kind of on a yes and yes. I, I don't necessarily like the filmmaking. I don't no. I I like the filmmaking, but I don't know if it holds up in a modern context. I don't know. You know. I think it does hold up. I don't think it's culturally relevant anymore. I do agree with that. I think that again, the Linda Hunter of it all is going to make a lot of people oh, not be be a little bit arm's length with yes. this movie. Yes. Um, but the actual drama filmmaking that Weir is able to bring, I think, totally holds up. Well, I was thinking culturally because there's a strong push right now to reassess, reassess our relationship with communism. And I think sure. that, you know, we grew up in an era where communism and fascism were tied together. But the irony of all these revelations is that this military junta and many dictators are actually funded by capitalist interests in America. Say what? So, like, uh, you know, when you watch this now, although the communists are not uh, portrayed as particularly intellectually uh, developed people, they're always depicted visually as rioters and sort of uh, crazy people. I think there would be some people that would glean information from this. Uh, we do need to rate this film, of course. But before we do, that is what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave, VS the machine at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. We also release videos on our YouTube channel. And if you want to see the entire list of films that we've watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page. That's letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There is a link in the show notes of this episode. You can also support for as low as $1 per month. Something that you can do for absolutely free is leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So Dave, what are you going to give this movie out of five? I think I'm going to go with a three. I was thinking about bumping up a little bit, but I, there's just something I'm uneasy with at the end of it, and I'm, mm-hmm. I actually can't put my finger on it. Unlike some of the films after we talk about it, it hasn't really gone up in mm. value either, even though I liked so many pieces of it. I'm giving it a four. I think it's a solid entertainment, solid drama. You know, it's like it's like when you complete a jigsaw puzzle, but you realize the picture that's on it isn't actually that, like you can't hang it up. Oh, it's a donkey. <laughs> so it's going to average up to 3.5. We're going to start going up this list because there's a few films that that ties with. So do we think this is better or worse than Fitzcarraldo? Better as a total film... But Fitzcarraldo is so weird. I know. That's what, I was going to say, like, <laughs> I might argue that Fitzcarraldo has maybe more cultural relevance, you know, but I mean, like, uh, I think I, I do um, enjoy this film yeah. better. All right. Well, the Let's next see. one is Gandhi. So do we think it's better yeah, or worse so, than Gandhi? I would watch this before I watch Gandhi again. I would too. But I know that we're a bit on the outside of this yeah, opinion. Yeah. But we, who gives a shit? It's our podcast. All right, what's next? The Last Unicorn. I like this better than The Last Unicorn. But you know, we're different. I didn't really like The Last True, Unicorn. True, but that okay. Much. How about 48 Hours? This is a I, tough one. I would say 48 Hours is better yeah, as a movie, personally. More fun. It's more fun. Yeah, yeah, it was more fun to watch. Yeah. Then entering our list at the new number 13 position well, that's pretty high it is yeah. you're living dangerously yeah, let me yeah. just uh, update this spreadsheet before i forget this, so if you just succinctly end this episode now it would be great and then and then we just simply record i just i just want to ask you the question and then we're going to wrap this whole thing up dave this whole puppy up oh god what is your opinion on the year 1982 all right all right what is my opinion i loved 1982 i think that overall just sorry you say you loved 1982 let me give you the the by the numbers yeah yeah your average rating for the year 1982 was a 2.69 yeah more than a 2.5 because 2.5 in my world 
Kyle, is the middle is the middle of zero and five. Great. Mine was I I should get a pie for this because my average rating was three point one four. Yeah, because we're point five off all the time because you're fucking softy, man. (laughs) You fucking psycho. I could have predicted that it would be a three point one on my two point (laughs) six. It's so straightforward. Even when we disagree on a film, somehow it'll always average out to a 0.5. And that's the difference, people, between an optimist and a realist. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you put that. Okay, so you love 1982. What a couple of tools. I loved it mostly because uh, we did get to watch some bangers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think overall, of the three seasons we've watched, 1999 had the most... uh, you know, impact for us emotionally, it's yeah, just because of we where grew we grew up, up with, with it. it. But this uh, movie, uh, this year, not only reinforced, let's say, my love for my favorite movie, Blade Runner, but I got to watch The Thing, and I learned that I like horror movies. Uh, mm-hmm. I got to see some big dramas. Like, I had never actually watched The Verdict before. I got to watch a good musical, Victor and Victoria. Yeah, we, got, yeah. we got a full range of... Uh, Films that are going to leave an imprint on Yeah, I, my biggest thing was being able to watch certain movies for the very first time. They've just been on my list of shame for way too long. Doss Boots being like the big one. But even like, um, I'm glad I got to see Fanny and Alexander again. Um, I don't think I would ever have watched Missing had yeah. it not been for this show. And it's right? a solid little movie. I think it should be talked about probably a little bit more. But same thing with Sophie's Choice. Like That, that has That's cultural relevance right. with the yeah. name of it at all. Uh, Conan... Officer and Gentleman, um, Fast Times. First Blood, we got to watch First Blood. Yeah, and then the revisits of certain ones were, were good too. Even even the movies that like I didn't really like all that much, I am glad I got to see Grease 2, The Beastmaster, right. uh, Firefox. Like These movies are not good. I'm never going to watch them again, but it's like, okay, check. I can, yeah, I, yeah. I don't have to, I can have an opinion on them. Um, I'm not that pleased that I had to watch Yes, Giorgio and Porky's because those were actively things that hated. I hated watching those movies. But we need that, right? Mm-hmm. We need, I mean, just on the presumption we've been looking ahead of what we might do next season, I think we're going to have, may have a problem with that. Yes. Is that, uh, it's good. Well, we'll see. But, you know, I think you need some trash to appreciate the gold, right? And yeah. We got a lot of trash this year too. Um, but some of the middling movies were actually not as bad as I thought they were going to be. I mean, even in the horror genre, the fact that we could watch Polter, um, we could watch Halloween 3 mm-hmm. and glean some information from it is <laughs> yeah. fascinating, right? It's not a terrible movie. No, it's like this, <laughs> this movie shouldn't exist, but uh, I have so much fun watching but it's that fine. movie. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. It's been a, it's been fun. I had more fun watching films this year than last year, perhaps. Did. Although in hindsight, not only that maybe I was a little harsh on my numbers, but there are a lot more movies from 1971 that are creeping into my subconscious now. Well, that's also the hardest thing. Is like 1971 was different because basically, except for I think two or three of them, those were all first time watches. Yeah. This one, I felt at least a third of them I had seen before. So I had a little bit of distance and it's always going to be different for a film. Be like, this is like the fifth time I'm watching Star Trek two versus like, this is the first time I'm watching sweet, sweet back. Right. It's like, you, you just have a very different interpretation of those things. And having the experience with 71, we got to watch, uh, I think, Losing Ground and Smithereens with a much more open mind, right. you know, because we've been through that experience, mm-hmm. challenging ourselves with even more guttural and uh, visceral or um, emotional and culturally charged films. So I don't think that if we had done, if we had gone straight to 1982, we would have 
appreciated losing ground or smithereens no. as much as we did. So I will say what is I think also fascinating. Each of us have given films five stars in this year. Even we we've given five stars out. However. We have not agreed on a five-star film since 1999. Yeah, because I'm right and you're wrong. Oh, most there you of the time. go. Yeah, so. Dave, if we were to, if you had full control over who got awards, yeah, because I'm, I'm a big believer in award shows, in awards, yeah, and rankings. It's important. I'm going to ask you this. We're going to go through just four categories. So, best actor, who would you have awarded the best acting Oscar to? It's hard because we were just scrambling before we started recording on the list. So I might be omitting someone from my mind, but my brain is telling me Paul Newman. Mm -hmm. I really like the verdict. What's interesting after, I was just thinking about this, does Peter O'Toole get a shout for saving that movie? I think he has to, right? <laughs> you have to give him a little bit of credit yeah, for being like, it. I don't like this movie, but you make this something that I'm not actively hating the entire time I'm watching it. We, we have to do a shout out because Rutger Howard doesn't get the best actor category, but he's fantastic. In you wish, he should have been in a best supporting yeah, category. He should have been nominated. But wasn't. Um, um, I actually want to agree with you. I, if I was to give out the award, that's probably who I would have given it to. Um, of course, uh, Ben Kingsley wins for Gandhi at the Oscars that year. He's good. Dustin's good. You know, I like Dixie yeah. a lot. There's a lot of good performances for the men, but for me, the gravitas of Paul Newman, because he does the full range, right? Mm -hmm. Piece of shit, drunk to uh enwrapped lawyer he does good speeches it's great right. he was great in that movie how about um best actress and yeah we were also talking about this i think unfortunately it's uh difficult because there weren't that many strong female roles there wasn't yeah. no i you know I'm, i'll probably agree with the meryl streep when she saves that movie i think that movie is very overrated as a film project yes but uh, Julie Andrews should get a shout because she's just Julie Andrews. And I, mean, I, I Julie Andrews. would have given it to Julie Andrews. I mean, she'd already won an award. So if you want to yeah, try go to that even way. it out. But, uh, and we didn't know that Meryl was about to win all of them. After. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there is that one scene that I think Meryl is like supremely ferocious and phenomenal inside of. So I could, I don't. You get it. But as a whole performance, I just like Julie Andrews in that. Here's going to be the interesting one. Who would you have given best director to? Yeah, director's a tough one. I you know, I have a bias for Ridley Scott's Blade Runner because I think that in everything that he did with it, and I'm going to include, I guess maybe it's the cinematography too, so it's hard. Is director the whole project or is it just how it's pieced together? Like the editor has a huge say in well, how sure. the film uh, develops. So, But I think as a vision, um, Blade Runner is a big one. Scorsese for me is great because he made... Uh, such a great understated, it's an underappreciated, understated uh, thriller. And then if you're going to go big, while Spielberg's E.T. is good, I got to think about Wolfgang Peterson because Das Boot was well, this a is fucking like, like, monster film. Normally, I would say best director and best picture are going to be aligned together, like 99% yeah. of the time. I would split it this year because I think I would absolutely give Das Boot best director when you look at how that movie was made we're talking like these are not light cameras and no. he is whipping around that submarine no, renting a real submarine <laughs> recreating the interior for the shots right? finding ways to light an actual submarine where you can actually see things which is a problem i have with all my modern movies nowadays but uh, even the, that sense of dread like there is that Yes, it's a three and a half hour long movie. You don't know it. Watch. you don't notice it but yeah there's those, those scenes where it's just like we're allowed to be quiet and let the dread set in and be like is that going to happen? Is there going to be explosions? And then boom, then we're, we're into the to the fray. So yeah, I would give it to Wolfgang Peterson, probably. Yeah. Yeah, how that's about, a good point. How about best picture? Who would you award best picture to? I don't know. Best picture is hard. You know, is it 
the most bombastic and enjoyable? Is it the greatest project? I guess that's why they typically align. I don't know. We watch so many big movies. I would not be... Star Trek 2? Star Trek 2, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ours is going to basically be going to E.T. That's what we have at the top of our list. E.T. is great. Uh, that's the one we kind of agreed on the most. So, like, I mean, I would not be opposed to doing that. I mean, if it was just me, I'd probably give it to the King of Comedy. I think as a whole package, that movie is is great. Like I said in the review of that, I think it's an, not just an underappreciated movie. I actually think it's a masterpiece yeah. that Scorsese makes. So, yeah. And it's the one that it's referenced. I mean, the Joker references that movie a lot, but I still think it's people don't put it up high a lot of times yeah. when they talk about Scorsese. But that's I mean, the problem when you make like 10 great movies, yeah. it's like, how do you rate them? Or, or not just 10, I mean, he makes more than 10 great movies, but he's made 10 uh, mafia movies that people love more than anything else. Sure. So it's, it's difficult to think of him. Like even when we watched that ambulance movie, if I didn't have such a strong dislike of nick cage it's actually a really well-built film yeah. right uh, i don't remember what it's called anymore but uh, uh bringing bring out the dead bring or out, bringing out the dead. Bring out the dead and then just you know the curveball pig i mean the thing was great yeah right uh, yeah. I, I know they'll have their own horror movie awards but yeah that thing's built really horror well is traditionally very undervalued at the oscars yeah. anyways so like the thing the is fact that there has been never been a horror film that won best makeup it's yeah. a bit of That's a travesty really weird. to me. Yeah. yeah, how does that work? I will say just to kind of put a final stamp on it, we will be doing 12 additional films from 1982 over on our Patreon. So each month over Did you already choose there. them? What are they? No, you get to choose them, Dave. I, I told you this. choosing yeah, them? Yeah, you choose the next the 12 movies. Anyways, Fuck. so our top 10 as of right now, but that could be different after our Patreon bonus episodes. Number 10, Missing. Number 9 is Fanny and Alexander. Number 8 is Tootsie. Seven, Victor Victoria. Six is First Blood. Five, The King of Comedy. Four, The Thing. Three, Star Trek Two. Two is Death Boat. I, I, we keep saying Death Boot, but it's actually Death Boat. And number one is E.T. That is currently where we are sitting. What films? I, we don't see all 12 of them, but Dave, what kind of films do you think you're going to grab? I don't know. I'm just scrolling through this and I've never heard of any of these. We should do that uh, really highly rated uh, documentary that we didn't talk about. But. Cannery Row. Am I on the wrong list? Well, Dave, we're, we're, we are wrapped up. Uh, still tied Soup to these for one. Dave, stop talking. We're tied to these chairs and uh, I don't know. Dave, can you... <laughs> Can you rock your chair with me? We we're gonna we're gonna try and hit this actually, my console. Cha my chairs might actually break, so. I am bleeding slightly from the temple here, Dave. Oh right wow. Time. I think it's a hard button. I think we're going forward in time. Ooh. But uh, in the interim, we do have to talk about some of these top 250 films. What happened to D.D. Hess? Oh, she's also bleeding from the temple, so this might be to her advantage. But I guess we'll wrap that up next episode. Oh, we're bringing her with us. We're bringing her with her, baby. Yeah, the rule is to dump the body, Kyle. Okay, well, we'll, we'll when we have more time to uh, elucidate people on our this fiction that we're creating, we'll be able to do that. Hanky-panky. We're going to watch Hanky Panky. I don't want any Hanky Panky with DDS. So we are going to be doing three episodes talking about the top 250 from Letterboxd to kind of fill out that list. And so we're going to start off this new year with Sherlock Jr., Ooh. a Buster Keaton film. All right, Dave, um, maybe try and 
nose me over that bandage. That sounds perverted. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass. Maybe all movies are bad.